Philippians chapter 3 this morning. You'll remember that uh, about five weeks ago, we were studying in Philippians. We ended up in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 16. Um, but this week, we'll begin this study again. We took kind of a four-week break for our, week, for our Easter passage. We've been studying, uh, preparing the sacrifice and leading up to the resurrection uh, last Sunday at Easter. So this week, we'll be in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, um, but before we get to chapter 3, I'm actually going to kind of bring us back up to speed for what's going on in this book, because Paul is writing about joy, and he's writing about joy to this church in Philippi, which was kind of a miniature city in Rome, um, but it wasn't in Rome, it wasn't close to Rome, the capital, it was, it was actually separated from Rome, and so if you were a Roman citizen living in Philippi, you might feel a little bit disconnected, but it was essentially where people would go. Uh, many times it was kind of like Arcadia Valley. You, we know a lot of people that, that because um, maybe they worked for years and years and years, and then they wanted to move somewhere quiet to retire and to live out the rest of their days. They wanted a peaceful, beautiful place. So they were there in Philippi, but many of them, because they were from the Roman culture, they would bring this to the Philippians area. But here in Philippi, we find that there's actually a Christian church that was planted. And Paul played a role in this, and so he, because he has a father's heart for the churches that he plants, he actually writes a letter to them. And he writes to them about joy because they, are, uh, they don't have a lot. They're not, the, the Christians in Philippi were probably one of the poorest churches in all of the New Testament that we read about. And yet what Paul says is that when he writes to the Corinthians is that the church there at Philippi exceeded in giving. Though they didn't have much, they gave until it hurt to bless other churches. And one of the ways that they did was to support Paul and his ministry. And Paul said he wouldn't take any money from the, from the Corinthian church because he didn't want to stumble anybody. And uh, th that's one of the reasons that we don't take an offering here. We have a box in the back and you can give as the Lord leads, but we don't want to stumble you. Because in certain cultures, um, you wouldn't believe this and you, you may but when you start passing the plate around, uh, people feel like that's all you want them for. They, you want them around so they can give you money. And the Philippian church, uh, they knew that, and they were like, hey, we just want to give because we want to be a blessing to these other churches. We, we're giving out of the abundance of our heart. We're not giving because Paul said you have to give. Um, we're giving because we feel compelled to do so because Jesus has loved us so much and he's provided for us. We want to be a blessing to others. And so the Corinthian church, though, he said, I won't take payment from you because lest you say that I preached the gospel to you because I was getting money from it. And so there at Philippi, they were a church that didn't have much, and yet Paul's preaching to them, and he's telling them, and he's instructing them on how to have joy and experience joy in this life, even when circumstances aren't perfect. And I love this because uh, many times, even though we're in a culture uh, that many would call affluent, and we're probably one of the most rich countries in the world, I think a lot of people suffer from fear, and they don't have any joy. Uh, they, they, which is kind of crazy, because the world says, well, if, if you've got everything you need, then you should be content, and you should have joy. But what we find is we become more and more affluent. We actually tend to have less joy, because we own a lot of stuff, and what we find is that it starts owning us. Uh, we have to maintain it. We have to keep it going. We have to pay taxes on it. We, you know, we, we never really own anything. It kind of owns us. And so 
Paul writes to them, and he gives us the formula for joy. In the first chapter, he talks about um, how Christ is the center point of joy. You ever heard the acronym JOY? Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And so he gives this as kind of an outline in the book of Philippians, because in chapter 1, he talks about how Jesus is, is really the most important part of life. He says, I want you to know, brethren, in verse 12 of chapter 1, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's in prison. Paul's been incarcerated because of what he has done to share the gospel. And so he says, even though I have this single focus to share the good news with the world, I've been put in jail. He says, all of these things that have happened to me are actually, uh, they've actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it's become evident to it, even the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Christ is the centerpiece of Paul's life. So when bad things happen to him, he doesn't say, oh man, that was really bad luck. Or man, my circumstances, you know, it's just a bad day. What he says is my bad day is not outside of God's control. My dad, bad day is within God's grasp and he's at the very least allowed it. He's allowed our bad days and it turns out for the furtherance of the good news. Because the good news is not that my life will get all fixed up and everything's going to be great on this side of heaven. There are people that preach that. The good news is that no matter what happens in my life, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And I love this because when my life is not going so great, when I do come down with cancer, God forbid, I still have hope in Christ because Christ has saved me, he's forgiven me, he's cleansed me, he's made me new. And I have the hope of heaven. And I get to take as many people with me as I will allow God to do through me. Our plan is not to fix this world, although many times because we obey the Lord, we do clean some things up and we do change social situations. God's good news is to be proclaimed that salvation and forgiveness of sin and death has even been fixed by the resurrection. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And so as we look at Philippians 1, he says this. He says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Verse 21, he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is no longer I living, but it's Christ who lives in me and lives through me. It's not about me anymore. It's about Jesus, everything. And so if we see life that way, it completely changes the view that we have about our circumstances, right? God, how could you let me ha this happen to me? I didn't let it happen to you. I let it happen to me. I live in you. I'm going to overcome. I'm going to use this for the furtherance of my kingdom, not yours. And so in chapter 2, he moves on to others. And we see the word others over and over and over. He says, let this mind be in you. Sorry, Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded and have the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. It's not about me anymore, right? 
And then he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but instead, he says, in humility, in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Not equal, but better than yourselves. And when you do that, what you'll find is that you won't put yourself up on a pedestal. You'll actually put others on a pedestal. You'll have a tendency to put yourself on a pedestal anyway, right? But you'll put others on a pedestal. You'll want to do things to bless them. You'll want to do things to encourage them and build them up. And as you do that, they'll see Jesus in you. He says, he says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he gives us examples. In verse 5, he starts talking about Jesus. He says, let this mind, and that word means attitude, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the heir to the kingdom. He has died to purchase this kingdom with his own blood. And he says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, did not consider his godliness something to be held onto selfishly, but he gave it up. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he makes our salvation possible by giving up his position in order to die in the place of sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. I came for those who didn't deserve it. And so in chapter 2, he talks about living for others. And he gives that example. Then he talks about Timothy. And then he talks about Epaphroditus. Chapter 3, he says, finally. Now, Paul writes finally a lot in his letters. Can you turn me down just a little bit in the speakers? I feel like I'm really loud. In his letters, over and over and over again, he says, finally. <laughs> but that doesn't mean he's done because Paul's a good preacher, right? Finally means, hey, I'm going to tell you another point, and then I'm probably going to take a breather and start another one. I'll try not to do that this morning. But he says, finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He's giving them a warning. Because in this chapter, in verse 1 through 11, Paul talks about his past. Verse 12 through 16, he talks about his present. And then today's passage, verse 17 through 21, he talks about his future. So Paul doesn't live for the past anymore. He lives in the present, but he lives for the future. And so I entitled my message today, Living for Then. And we always hear people in today's society saying, you got to live for the now. you got to just grasp it up and take it. But what Jesus tells us and what Paul preaches is you need to live for then. Living for now will get you in trouble. If you live in the moment and make decisions without considering where they go, the consequences, and what the Lord thinks about it, then you're living for now. That's dangerous. So he says there, he says in the first 11 verses, we see Paul as the accountant. Paul's an accountant. Did you know that? He, then in verse 12 through 16, we see Paul as an athlete. And he gives us illustrations as an athlete. But he says in the first section, he says, um, 
beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, have no confidence in the flesh. And then he gives examples. He says, if anybody has the ability to have confidence in the flesh, it's me. I've got the ability to have confidence in my flesh. He, and he gives all of the criterion. He basically says, I was born of Israel. I, I, I lived out the law. I did all these good deeds, but they were nothing. So he goes on to say in verse 7, the things that were used to be gained to me, these I have counted as lost for Christ. He says, I indeed also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, I had this previous life where I lived out all of the law. I did all the right things. I said all the right things. And what I found out is I had no peace. I hadn't really fulfilled the law. I was self-righteous, not God-righteous. Now, if I asked you the question, do you know anybody that's self-righteous? I guarantee most of us in here will be able to go, I know somebody. But let me ask you this question. Let's go a little deeper. Let's not think about this passage on the, the scheme of what, what are other people like. Let's ask ourselves this question. Am I self-righteous? Do I try to make my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? Do I try to prove myself based on what I can do for God? It's a question we all need to ask because many of us assent to the fact that we trust Jesus for our salvation, but all week long we try to justify ourselves. We try to do enough good things. We try to say enough right things. We try to fulfill our, our obligations to prove to God, hey, I'm doing this for you. But what Jesus says is, why do you call me good? Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus? He says, what, do I, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, well, what, do you, what are you doing right now? Like, what, what have you already done? And he starts listing out the law. He starts listing out the ways he's fulfilled the law. And, and Paul writes over and over again that the law cannot save. It was never meant to save us. It was meant to show us that we were unrighteous in the sight of a holy God. And so as, as he asked this young man this, uh, the young man lists off all of his qualifications for being righteous. And Jesus says, one thing I ask of you, one thing you lack, go and sell all of your stuff and give the proceeds to the poor. And the man, having been given the instruction, he didn't listen. He said, oh, that's too much. And he left. He walked away. Jesus told him the one way in which he lacked, and he couldn't do it because he was grasping to this life. And so Paul says, he says, all the things that I used to count as gain, I've counted them as loss. I've, I've flushed my bank account of those things, and I've taken on Christ, so now I'm no longer bankrupt, but I'm completely full with all the righteousness I'll ever need. I have everything I need in Christ. We sang that song, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. He's done it all. He's paid it all. I don't have to do anything, so my works can cease. I no longer have to prove myself. Jesus did it for us. But then we see in the next section, Paul says, not that I've already attained. <laughs> he says, my righteousness is in Christ. I've counted everything else as rubbish. Now I've taken on Christ. But then he says, not that I have already obtained or attained 
or am already perfected, but he says this, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of me. He says, even though Jesus paid it all, and he's the one that's going to work in me both to will and to do for his good pleasure, he says, I haven't arrived yet. I'm under construction still. There's still things that I have to do. Jesus has paid it all for my salvation. He's made me righteous in the sight of God, and yet I have a responsibility to fulfill this calling by doing what I can to be pleasing to the Lord. And so he says, gives us a sports reference here. He says, I press on that I can lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of for me. And he says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind and I press forward to the things which are ahead. I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on towards that goal is not talking about getting saved. When he's talking to these guys and he's giving this sports illustration, he's talking to the people that understand what it means to compete in the Olympic Games. They, they love the Olympics. Paul loved sports. If you're a sports guy, you can relate to Paul because he loves sports. And he loved what, watching them and, and all the work they put into getting good at their sport. But here's what happens. In order to compete in the sport, you don't just have to train. You also had to be a citizen of the kingdom of Rome. You couldn't compete if you weren't a citizen. So he's talking to people that can compete. They're already citizens. They're already saved. They're already trusting Jesus for salvation. He says, but there's more to it than just trusting Jesus and saying I'm saved and never doing anything from that point on. He says, he says that we have to press on towards the higher calling in Jesus Christ. And that means training up. We were talking a couple weeks ago about baseball at our men's study. And Steve and I were talking about how, you know, on game day, people get so frustrated. But it's not game day that makes the game. It's all the practices. Everyone shows up to practice because if they don't, the coach won't let them play, right? But it's more than that. The practice is important because it makes the game. When you get to the game, nerves get you, you get nervous, and, and the ball's flying at you, and you're trying to hit it, but you're really in automatic mode by the time the game comes on. You're repeating everything you've done in practice. So many Christians are frustrated on the day of adversity when they get tested in their faith. They're like, oh, why did I fail? Did you show up to practice? Jesus doesn't make us go to practice. <laughs> We have to do that on our own volition. But in the day of trial, we'll show whether or not you're prepared. Did you practice or not? Did you verse yourself and with what God's word says we are to do as believers as we follow him? Have you simply heard God's word and obeyed it? Because if you hear God's word and you obey it and you get really good at that, guess what's going to happen? On the day of adversity, you're going to be in automatic mode. Your main goal is to obey the Lord. It's going to happen. I, I read, uh, I was at the woods the other day, and in the coffee shop, they got all these little mugs, and they got these signs with sayings, and t-shirts, and socks, and all these little gifts you can get people. But one of the things I really liked, I took a picture of it, it said, be careful what you practice, because you will get good at it. Be careful what you practice, because you're going to get good at it. That's good, bad, and otherwise. 
But if we practice simply hearing the voice of the Lord and obeying it, it becomes a knee-jerk reaction. Your knee-jerk reaction will no longer be to yell and get angry. Your knee-jerk reaction will no longer be to do whatever's convenient. Your knee-jerk reaction will become obedience and faithfulness. It will become the well-worn path that you're used to. And you know what happens? Is as you take that well-worn path of obedience, the people who follow you, and you all have someone who follows you, they will take that path too. My daughter doesn't care where I'm going. She wants to be with me, right? She just loves what I'm doing. She doesn't care about what we're doing. She just wants to be with me. So there are always little people or <laughs> our coworkers, our family members. Eventually, they'll see God's faithfulness and, and they'll want that. Even if they don't know what it is, they'll follow the well-worn path that we worn down. And we have to wear down a well-worn path for those of the next generation who will and are following us. And so he says, I don't count myself to have apprehended. This is humility, right? And Paul, the apostle, wrote a good portion of our New Testament, and he writes in this letter, as he's in prison, I have not yet apprehended. I haven't arrived. I can't put it in cruise control retirement mode. I've still got things to do because I still have breath in my lungs and because I still have this message that God's poured into me. My own salvation that I'm a partaker of, I need to tell people and I need to live it out so that others will see the glory of the Lord. Somebody prayed this morning in our prayer meeting, Lord, help people to see that we didn't do this. This was all you. That moving here in one day, having two work days before this, preparing this place for worship wasn't us. It was the Lord. We had a responsibility to work hard at it and to prepare and to make plans and to power wash and to mow grass and to wash windows and vacuum floors and bust out concrete walls. But all of that was because the Lord did it through us. And so as we continue on, he, he goes from being an accountant, talking about his past, counting all things lost for the sake of Christ, which I would ask you, do you count the past is lost, or do you still glory in it? And then he says, and he talks about his present, he talks about being an athlete, working out. Are you willing to work out just as hard as you used to do in your glory days for sports as you are to follow the Lord? Because I will tell you, uh, what plays out in the big game will look like what you did in practice. And then he goes on to talk about living for the future. So Paul says this in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example. He doesn't say, don't pay attention to my life. I'm, I haven't arrived yet. He says, follow my example. Let me ask you, do you have an example worth saying something like this? Follow me, imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. Jesus even said that. He said, be holy for I am holy. Now, did he say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and do it in your own power? No, he said, be holy, for I am holy. But what do we see him doing in the morning? He's submitting to the will of the Father. One time, the disciples woke up, and they were like, where's Jesus at? We've been with him. And what they found is that he was off praying. He was spending time with his Father, getting to know what his instructions were for the day. And then all day long, he served and was poured out and loved people and healed people and, and spoke to people. And all of that he did was because he had been filled up first thing in the morning. 
And so he was a person worth imitating. And then Paul, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, says, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Everything that you see me do that imitates Christ, do it. Replicate it. Uh, if, you, if you don't know why I'm doing it, just do it until you, until you start to understand why I'm, I'm doing it. He says, practice these things. He says, brethren, join in following my example and note or make note of those who so walk also. In other words, those who are doing the same things I'm doing as they follow Jesus, take note of them, watch them, imitate them. How many of you guys know someone or have wanted to get good at something and so you watch another person who is awesome at it? You know, people that love to cook and want to get better at it, they watch Master Chef. Or they watch the, sh- you know, uh, what's the other guy that makes the, um, I don't know any of the shows. <laughs> I'm searching, I'm grasping, but uh, we watch Master Chef, the kids' version. I th- feel like he's a little more gracious with them, and so I'm like, I can watch this. But they get really good at cooking, but no one gets good at things without watching someone else that loves it and is good at it. Paul loves Jesus. First and foremost, and it comes out in his letters, and it comes out in those who follow him. They saw that he loved Jesus. If he was a hypocrite, Timothy wouldn't have served with him. Epaphroditus wouldn't want him to hear what he had to say. They knew that he, was, he had his own hiccups, I'm sure, but he definitely loved Jesus, and love covers a multitude of sins. So in all the things that he wasn't good at, I think people put up with him because he genuinely wanted to follow Jesus. But he says, Take note of those who walk in the same way. As you have us for a pattern. You have us for a pattern, Paul says. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Do you know those, there are those out there who claim to be Christians and aren't really? This doesn't surprise us. Paul says it in every letter. Watch out for the people that say they're of Christ, but they're really enemies of God. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? Doesn't he say that? But he also says, we need to be fruit inspectors. He's not saying, don't take note of and pay attention to the way people walk and make judgments so that you can learn from it. What he says is, you can't eternally judge people. But he also says, Take note of them, pay attention to them, because how you judge people is how you will also be judged. You ever notice that the things you notice in people, their character flaws that drive you nuts, are the same things you struggle with? They look way worse on other people, but they're the things that you probably struggle with. I'm noticing that more and more. As the Lord continues to humble me, the things that aggravate me about other people, I'm finding out that those are my things that I need to work on but I'm getting off ta- task here. He says, he says, many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. It doesn't cause him to get angry. It causes him to weep because people who claim to follow Christ and do not and tell everybody about it, they're the most vocal, by the way. They bring shame to the name of Christ and they push people away that might come to know the true and living God. So Paul, ha- he weeps for them. And then he says, They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And their end is destruction. Their God is actually their belly. 
and their glory is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Paul says this is a bad thing, by the way. Setting your mind on the things of this earth is a bad thing. It can get you in the most trouble. He says, our citizenship is where? In heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things under himself, under his authority. <laughs> if you've got a rebellious type spirit, the Lord wants to, sub he wants to cause you to come under his relegation he wants to bring you and conform you to the image of christ that means submission to the father but what he says here is that those who are enemies of the cross of christ their end is destruction he tells us their end and then he tells us who they really follow he says their god is their belly what does that mean does that mean that they worship their belly they really you know like oh belly help me today you know or does that mean that they follow their appetite? When I don't eat for a little bit, my belly starts telling me what to do. You, you ever watch Winnie the Pooh? Oh, bother, you know. But you got Winnie the Pooh, his stomach. It's got this, like, probably a trademark noise. It's like, you know, and it grumbles. And then all day long, he tries to find out where he's going to get his next honey fix, you know. But maybe your appetite isn't food. Maybe it's to please men. Maybe it's to be popular. Uh, maybe it's to look good. Uh, maybe it's to be good at sport. You know, whatever the thing is, what is your appetite? Do you truly have a hunger and a thirst for God's righteousness? Or does your belly that tells you eat now, no matter who you step on to get there, <laughs> is it your desire for pleasure? When we were in Israel, um, a couple weeks ago, or however long it's been now, uh, we went to this place called Bet Shan in the south of Israel. And what we found is it was an ancient uh, city, and it was very Roman or Greek. It was very pleasure-centered. It was a very complicated city. It was amazing, the things that they built. Where there's a slave, there's a way, right? They had plenty of free labor. Um, but what they did was they built this huge empire city. And on the top of this major hill, they had a a palace that was uh, a pagan worship temple. And then their city was very complicated. They had this amphitheater for having horse races and chariot races. They had bathhouses for whatever goes on in bathhouses. We won't get there today. And then they had um, these roads. The road actually had a crown on it. So when it rains, the water went down to gutters and ran off. It was very ahead of its time. They had all these beautiful columns, and they had all these places. They had theaters to go see shows. It was all about entertainment. Their society was built on entertainment. Does that remind you of any place? That reminds me of my own home. I mean, I'm convicted about that, but, but what I want to point out is that when we went to Capernaum, where Jesus did a, a good amount of his uh, ministry, even in Jewish culture, their city was very small. They had a place by the Sea of Galilee that was, a, it was like a fish shop. People would go fishing. They'd bring them in. They had these stone holders to put fish in, and they would put them in salt brine, and you could buy fish for your meal that day. 
very simple shop. And then they also had the tabernacle uh, or uh, the, the synagogue where they would go worship the Lord. That was probably the most ornate place. And then there was your home. And your home was like a, a one-room place. It wasn't complicated. There wasn't much to do. The center of the town was the place of worship. They, they worshiped, you know, God, Yahweh, looking for the Messiah. But I just want to point out that everything in their culture was around what they worshiped. And I want to point out that in every society, it's a, we center our lives around what we worship. In the Roman city or that place called Bethshan, everything was surrounding, uh, built around what they worshiped. And what we find out is that what they worshiped was themselves. But in the Jewish culture, everything was centered around who they worshiped, and it was their God. Now, they had their own hiccups. But things get simpler when we worship and we serve God. Things get more complicated when we serve ourselves. Because we change from day to day. We have different appetites that we have to fight. But when we tru truly follow Jesus, and we want to please Him, it actually simplifies our lives. And I, I've heard that more in the last few years than I have any other time. Everybody wishes their lives were simpler. So my, my challenge for you would be, seek Jesus, pray, read your Bible, and find out what Jesus wants you to do. Stop trying to do everything you want to do, and start doing what Jesus has for you to do. And I tell you, everything that your heart's desire is for simplicity it will be found. God will give you simplicity. Now, he's going to chop some things out you'd really like to have. But he's also going to bring some things in that you can't have if you keep holding on to this. Let me, let me read through this one more time. Verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. That includes the human heart, by the way. He's able to subdue all things to himself. The lordship of Jesus Christ is not an overall theme just to try to get the world under it. The hardest thing to conquer is not the world, it's our hearts. And we have, undivided, or we have divided hearts. We do. We struggle with that. But God wants to change that. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and my crown, stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast. Trust in the Lord. Do what he's called you to do. And stand. Hold the line is the idea. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. I heard this on Wednesday night, so it kind of inspired and stirred me up a little bit. Verse 34 says this. When Jesus had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it 
or another version of the another one of the gospels says he will find it he'll find his life for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or what will man give in exchange for his soul for whatever is ashamed of excuse me for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation and sinful generation of him the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels this is the eternal perspective right we have daily appetites we have things that we want to do and accomplish and what god says is if you would come after him if you would follow him you must first deny yourself take up your cross and follow me now we don't have to die for the sins of the world jesus did that for us what is he saying there? You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Well, many times we want to do things, we want to accomplish things, and we will deny ourselves things to do that, right? If we want to lose weight, we'll deny ourselves food. If we want to get good at a sport, we will deny ourselves other hobbies and activities so that we can devote lots of time to it. If we really like fishing, we will deny ourselves buying something else or saving up for something else so we can buy a fishing boat and go do that thing. We are always willing to deny ourselves to do what we really want to do. And what Jesus says is if anyone desires to follow me, he must first deny himself perhaps other things that we might have conflicting interests with. We might have conflicting schedules with. He says, whoever would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So let me ask you, number one, don't raise your hand. Do you want to follow Jesus? Ask yourself this question. Do I truly want to follow Jesus? Number two, ask yourselves this question. Am I willing to give up the most precious things, the appetites that I have to do that? Now, then ask Jesus, what is it that you're calling me to deny myself in order to gain what I can't lose? There was a famous missionary, and his name escapes me right now, who said this, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. I think it was Jim Elliot. He went to Africa, I believe. But he said, he is no fool to give, what he cannot ke- give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I'm not saying that God's calling you to give up something specific. I'm saying spend time with Jesus and find out what it is that is hindering you from growing closer to him and give the thing up. God's way is the best in order that you may gain what you cannot and will never lose. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Paul's exhortation this morning we thank you for his willingness to be candid and and totally honest about the fact that um, he had a previous life where he was self-righteous and he gave it up so that that he could gain christ not something uh, not uh, some job not he, he wanted to know christ personally he wanted to know him deeply in a way that would change and transform his life and then because of that he trained at it. He worked at it. He was willing to give everything to, to train up for the day of adversity. He wanted to fulfill the, the calling that you'd placed on his life. And so he did whatever it took. 
And he did all of this to live for the eternal kingdom that will never fade. And so, Father, I pray that you would challenge us this morning to do inventory on our lives. What are the ways in which we're wasting the life you've given us? What are the ways that you want to redeem and, and transform and make them about you instead of about us? And Father, help us to see eternally that this life is only temporary. It's, it's a soap bubble. It's there and then it's gone. And then we'll find out what true life, what real life is. So Father, help us to live for eternity. Help us to live for these things and help us to take all that you've given us, the influence, the hobbies, the strengths, the weaknesses, and to allow you to transform them and make them uh, tools in the hands of the one who's still trying to reach a lost and a dying world. Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the opportunity to study this holy scripture that will always be true. So Father, let us have ears to hear. Let us let you transform us by the renewing of our minds as we submit to your authority this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.